From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Trujillo is poised and ready to answer your questions if you would like to Ask a question of uh, fathers, uh, simply pick up that telephone and give us a free phone call to 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall makes his triumphant return to the <laughs> control room producing the program today. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, live today from the Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio, Father John Tregilio, how are you? Fine. Happy Columbus Day. Same to you, Mister <laughs> Italian Priest. You, um, what? What are, are you? Are you seminary hopping? What are you doing here? <laughs> it's, it's what they call a busman's holiday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I go to the seminary on my day off from the seminary. <laughs> Very good. We've got an email here from Joan, and uh, she says uh, a first-year priest told a group of us not to use the word host to mean the Eucharist today in another parish before Mass. Uh, a call was made for an extra host minister. I know that consecrated host equals the Eucharist. Can host be used interchangeably with the Eucharist? Is it now the new term to call the extraordinary (laughs) minister of the Eucharist a host minister? This is the second time I've heard this new term. Can you please clarify? Help Joan out, Father. Well, if you just use the word host without the the preface of um, sacred... It sounds like something from the Sci-Fi Channel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something that's a host is uh, carries a, a alien with it. Um, what we want to avoid is words like bread and wine after the consecration, and even the Roman Missal has been tweaked to go from cup to chalice. Um, I've never, ever, ever heard of the extraordinary um, ministers of holy hosts. <laughs> it's Holy Communion, uh, Holy Eucharist. Um, Yet you can still refer to the host, whether it's consecrated or not, because the host is basically, you know, what's before you. But I guess to make that uh, distinction between the consecrated and unconsecrated, I would stick to the word host for after, before the consecration and sacred host uh, afterwards. Or you could just say Holy Eucharist. But uh, calling the person who helps distribute Holy Communion um, Minister of the host is is a bit odd. 
Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with using host if you use it in the proper context. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Lines are filling up. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Linda in Tampa writes in, I have Christian friends and even family members who question the existence of purgatory. What explanation can I give them to verify that it exists? And also, is it more of a state of being than an actual place? How do we know? One more question regarding St. Joseph, <laughs> and we'll hold off on the we'll hold off on the St. Joseph question. Let's tackle okay. purgatory first. Okay. All right. Well, the actual word purgatory doesn't uh, you can't find it in the Bible, but you can't find the find the word Bible in the Bible. So uh, that shouldn't be a distress to us. But the concept of purgatory, of being cleansed, it comes from the Latin word purgatus, which means to be cleansed. And as opposed to this medieval idea, which was never endorsed by the church, but it was common uh, uh, thought, people envisioned purgatory as like a suburb of hell. Uh, you went to hell and then you got paroled and got out or something like that. Um, that's not what the church believes. Purgatory is, if anything, a, a suburb of heaven. Um, it's not a physical place because the people in purgatory are only souls. Souls don't take up space. Uh, physicality would only be in heaven and hell after the resurrection of the body. So purgatory is not a place, but it's a, it's a state, a state of cleansing. And the people in purgatory uh, want to be there insofar as they want to be completely cleansed. It's like if somebody important is coming to your house for dinner, um, I know my mother made us all wash up and even behind the ears where nobody was going to look. She said, you're not going to be dirty uh, messes when your great uncle comes from California. Uh, so we're going to go to heaven. We want to be completely spotless. So that's what purgatory does. It removes all that attachment to sin. It's the, um, we call the temporal punishment due to sin, but it's not the same as the pains of, of hell. Hell is eternal damnation. It's punishment for sin, whereas in purgatory, the pain and suffering are medicinal. And then the second part of Linda's question about St. Joseph, she wants to know if anybody knows where his final resting place is. We know that Mary was assumed into heaven, but I don't know if anything was said about Joseph. We know where the remains of St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. James are assumed to be, so I was curious about St. Joseph. Yes, I don't think we have any actual places that purport to be the final resting place, but that doesn't mean that aren't some churches or shrines that may not lay claim to that. Uh, there are some uh, few places that I heard might have a relic of St. Joseph, uh, but we don't have any uh, incontrovertible evidence of where his exact uh, uh, grave or tomb would be. Because he was a carpenter, he didn't have a lot of money, I doubt that he would have an elaborate grave. So it could have been very, very simple, and you know, obviously, uh, there was not a church built on that site. Whereas we have other places when Saint Helena, the uh, mother of Saint Emperor Constantine, went to Holy Land, they excavated and found, you know, where Calvary was, and established, you know, the church there. They established the Holy Sepulchre, um, but I don't recall them actually finding a spot or purported spot of St. Joseph, but that doesn't mean we don't believe that he's buried somewhere. It's just that uh, his body needs to wait for the resurrection of the dead. So I don't know if Sam was a former student of yours, but this is a question I would anticipate that a first-year seminarian might ask. <laughs> 
Why did God choose to reveal himself slowly over so many years rather than sending a prophet at the beginning who could teach the whole truth all at once? Uh, something called indigestion. <laughs> it just be too much at one shot. Um, anyway, it's if you when you get to heaven, God willing, you can ask him. <laughs> um, we don't have a day fide explanation why we have what we call gradual revelation, but uh, it makes sense, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, this would take time because you're dealing with a very, you know, uh, young um, human race. And certainly God first, you know, gives the Ten Commandments. And then later on, we have the this, this Sermon on the Mount. Um, it takes time for people to believe there is one God. Then the, the re revelation of that it's one God, but three persons. Uh, the revelation of the Trinity, or of the Incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh is true God and true man. So all the things we believe, it took time not just to reveal, but it took time for us to uh, comprehend it, at least comprehend to the level we can. So uh, I think if you had someone sh explain it all at one shot, it would have been like giving differential calculus to kindergarten kids, a little too much. And David wants to know, why do Catholics believe that Mary is co-redemptrix, and what is that anyway? Okay, that's a good question. And remember the word co does not necessarily mean equal in all aspects. Uh, we have a pilot and you have a co-pilot. But the pilot's in charge. The co-pilot is there to help uh, the pilot, but the, the co-pilot is not equal to uh, the pilot. And Mary's co-redemptress means she participates and shares at Jesus' invitation. It's not by necessity. It's by divine will. In the same way, uh, it's God's hands were not tied that he had to have 12 apostles. He could have had 10. He could have had one. He could have had none. He didn't have to have seven sacraments. But God chose to do these things in a particular way. So him inviting Mary to be co-redemptrix does not take away in any way, shape, or form the fact that her son Jesus is the Redeemer, but he also says, you know, take up your cross and follow me. Well, why do we need to take up our cross if he is the Redeemer? Because he invites us to. He invites us to unite our suffering with his, not because it has to be that way, but it's by his divine invitation. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Maddie in Dayton, Ohio, and we've got plenty of time and plenty of room for your phone calls. The number again is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you'd like a fresh look at the news of the day from a Catholic perspective, let me steer you towards our great website, Church Pop. 
Uh, you can find all of that information at churchpop.com, and you can even get a daily email from Church Pop sent straight to your email inbox. I get that every morning, and it's always something that I find uh, interesting uh, about the Catholic faith. Just go to EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. As advertised, first up today is Maddie, a first-time caller in Dayton, Ohio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maddie, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. How are you doing? Fabulous, thank you. What can we do for you today? Um, I had a quick question. Um, I was reading through uh, Genesis the other day, and I was trying to see... Where is the feminine in God? Because I know that he made Adam first, and then he commanded them to name all the animals and try to find a partner amongst them. And it almost seems like Eve was an afterthought, and that, like, you know, maybe that, you know, the feminine might not be there other than just because God was like, oopsie, I forgot. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think it does. Um we have to remember there's there's two uh, creation stories in Genesis. Uh, the first uh, creation story, it says that God created man, male and female. He created them. So the first one, uh, it gives us a, a progression of being, so to speak. So we have inanimate matter, like the sun and the moon and the stars and the rocks and all that stuff, and then plant life, then animal life, and then the last thing God creates is uh, human beings. And he says male and female created them. And uh, there's this complementariness that's expressed in that. And then in the second story of creation, uh, it has Adam first, then the animals, and he's not necessarily content with just having pets. So then God puts him to sleep and takes the rib and makes, makes Eve. Uh, these are both true stories in the sense that it gives us a very clear uh, theological truth that's being taught uh, in the first one. Uh, Human nature is the crowning of God's creation here on earth. Obviously, we believe that angels are above us, but uh, the material world was created after the creation of the angels. Adam and Eve, in that story where Eve is created after Adam, recall, too, that Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The two become one. So there's no sense that the male is superior to the female, uh, and there's not really male or female in God, because God is a pure spirit. Now, Jesus, in his human nature, is definitely a man. Uh, he's masculine, he's male, he's a man, but only in his human nature. In terms of uh, his divinity, there is no gender in God, although God the Father reveals himself in that with that name, Father, and God the Son, okay? So it's not mother and uh, father, it's not son and daughter, but that's a revealed uh, concept. Again, it doesn't mean that... Um, boys are better than girls or that uh, sons are better than daughters. Uh, we're make, we have to make very good, clear distinctions there. So there's really not a feminine aspect of God and not really a masculine aspect of God in, in his pure divinity. But I know some people are trying to say the Holy Spirit is the feminine side. Well, no, there's no side to God. He's pure spirit. And also, Maddie, it should be noted that in that second account— uh, when a uh, woman was brought on the scene, she was taken from his side, from a rib, not from his head, that he would be over her, and not from his feet, that she would be under his feet, but from his side, that she would be uh, co-equal with him. Does any of that make sense to you? 
I can see that, yeah. All right, very good. Thank you for the phone call. We really appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Betty, and she is in the great state of New Hampshire, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Another first-time caller. Betty, you're on with Father John. Thank you very much, Um, and thank you for this program. It's wonderful. My question is, I'm wondering why the Catholic Church doesn't focus more on the rosary as a complete prayer. Okay, uh, could you be a little bit more explicit why you, you, you think it's not complete? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not included in any of the Masses. I think that okay. if we actually push the, if we push the rosary and people saw it for, I think, what the way that it's supposed to be reflected that it's truly the mother of God, you know, Jesus pointing to Mary, that Mary, excuse me, Mary pointing to Jesus, Jesus pointing to the Father. If we saw Mary as the Virgin Mother and Jesus, her son, here on earth for us as God himself for our sacrifice, I think people would um, treat women with more reverence. I don't think we'd have the questions that we do. Okay, well, I mean, you, you make a good point, but we have to also make a very important distinction that um, the rosary, which is very good, it's very Christocentric. Uh, Pope Paul VI made that clear in Mariolus Cultus, and Pope John Paul the Great, uh, also in his uh, um, encyclical on the, the, the Mother of the Redeemer. Sacred worship, divine liturgy, the Mass, is something that comes directly to us from God himself. And Jesus at the Last Supper used, uh, you know, bread and wine. Um, so we continue that absolute fidelity to what was used uh, at the Last Supper uh, to this day. Uh, the Holy Rosary is a sacramental. It's not a sacrament. So th- it's not really a part of the Mass. But I've been in parishes. I was a pastor for 16 years, and we had the Rosary before Mass. We had the Rosary after Mass for those people wanted to participate, but it was never considered part of the Mass because it's not really divine worship. Um, it's it's a Marian devotion, and I said, again, it's very Christocentric, because as you rightly point out, you know, uh, Mary is pointing to her son, and St. Dominic, uh, the Guzman, uh, the founder of the Dominican Order, the Order of Preachers, he used the Rosary to combat the Albigensian heresy uh, in the 13th century that denied, uh, you know, Jesus's divinity. So the rosary is very important as a, as a, a part of our Catholic faith, but it's not part of divine worship. So that's why we would not insert it in there, even on the Feast of the Holy Rosary, which was just uh, the other day on uh, October the 7th. But I agree with you. If we did the rosary more often, and if priests, you know, said, I'm going to help lead the rosary or at least participate in it, it would have a, a big value. But it will never be part of the divine liturgy because it was never part uh, from the from the beginning and father what about the notion that in the many apparitions that have been approved by the church when our lady came back and encouraged us to pray the rosary she really never encouraged us to do that during the sacred liturgy huh that's right now i know people were praying it in the in, in prior times when they uh were not that uh, well uh, versed in latin um it's never been condemned at a private level but Pope Pius XII and the Second Vatican Council, uh, and certainly today, we make it very clear we would like people to have some active, full, conscious uh, participation. So 
if you can understand what's going on at the mass um, by use of a missile or your own uh, intelligence, it's more important that you participate in the divine worship aspect and leave the hyperdulia uh, to either before or after mass. Next up is Maria. She is in the great state of Ohio watching or listening on Roku today. Maria, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Jack. <laughs> hey there. Um, Father John, I'd like to know if I answered a question correctly. I was asked why one of the altar servers carries the crucifix during the procession in and out at the beginning and ending of Mass. Am I mistaken that this person is doing Simon the Cyrene's part in the man into uh, how we do about Jesus's crucifixion? Well, that's certainly a, a good um, analogy. I would like to use that myself. I'll, I'll footnote you though when, when I do do that again. Um, <laughs> The real, I mean, the real purpose of the bringing the of the processional cross, uh, because uh, it's to show that this is a formal entrance, like Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, the carrying of the of the crucifix in a procession denotes that this is uh, something of, of of religious value, but also uh, devotional, and uh, it involves the clergy and then any of the laity that are involved uh, in in that particular. Uh, celebration. Um, it's something that, you know, especially when in, in medieval times, whenever there was a, a, a procession of somebody of importance, even going back to the time of Julius Caesar, when Caesar or the emperor came back in triumph, there was this big elaborate parade. And the parade wasn't just something that was esoteric or uh, incidental. Uh, it was an act of, of showing gratitude uh, for the, the person who was the main uh, character of that. So Caesar conquered the Gauls. He came to Rome. He had his triumph. Um, so too in the procession, we're showing that Jesus's victory over sin and death uh, is, is part of this procession. So it has a lot of um, connections to antiquity, but I do like the analogy with um, with Simon of Cyrene. Um, but I don't think that was the, the one and only reason why uh, this developed. I think it was more of that uh, historical context. God bless you, Maria. Thank you so much for the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Francis wants to know, if conditional security of salvation is true, how do we know what secures our salvation? <laughs> um, well, when you mean by conditional security, I, I'm... I, I believe you're trying to say that we're, we don't have absolute metaphysical certitude of, of our salvation because the analogy I like to make is um, we make a distinction between redemption and salvation. Jesus redeemed us on the cross on Good Friday when he died for our sins. The actual act of salvation, though, occurs when you and I actually get into heaven. So the analogy I like to use is if you fall off the boat, uh, you're on a cruise ship somewhere, and you fall off the boat— the person who throws you, uh, you know, the life buoy, uh, they're doing the act of redemption, but you're not actually saved. You're not safe till you're back on the boat. 
All right. So there's a process uh, of being brought onto, and then once you arrive, is when you can say, I'm safe and sound. So once we're in heaven, that's when we're saved. Um, we're redeemed by Jesus, but it's not uh, an absolute foregone conclusion because at any moment while we're still alive, God forbid, we could commit a mortal sin and turn our back completely on God, and uh, he respects our free will. So it's not once saved, always saved. You're saved once you're in heaven, but we've been redeemed, and we need to uh, be confident that we're going to live in, in a proper life. Got a unique opportunity for you on Open Line Monday. Wide open phone lines here at the Midway Point. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Trujillo. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Kyle, another first-time caller in the great state of Louisiana, listening on Christ Our King Radio. Kyle, you're on with Father John. Uh, hello, Father John. I Hi. Have a, uh, I have a question um, real quick. I was out of town the first weekend of October, so I missed my Mass. And this past weekend, I was in line to go to confession. And after the woman came out, the woman before myself, the priest came out of the confessional. He never turned around to look back to see if there was anyone else in line. So I just had to go sit back down, and I did not get to receive communion. Do I have to try again to make another confession? Well, if 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 uh, now, please don't answer this question, okay? But if you had a mortal sin you needed to confess in order to be able to receive communion, then yes, you need to go to confession. Um, if it was just venial sins, you you do not need to go because any of the sacramentals would remove that. But if it's a mortal sin. You do need to go to confession, and you did make a good attempt. So uh, worst-case scenario is the nuns used to tell us if you had crossed the street and a truck ran you over, I think you'd be in good stead because you had intended to go. And um, certainly you want to always, if in a situation like that, you want to make a perfect act of contrition. But you, you really, if you have a mortal sin and you're unable to confess it, you should uh, wait to um, go to communion again until you have that confession. Now, I know as a pastor, there are many times where I had to leave the confessional because I was going to, I'm the celebrant of Mass, and it's one minute to Mass time. I have to say to the people who are waiting, and it's not their fault that someone ahead of them maybe took a little too long, but I would say to the people, I can hear your confession after Mass, but all those people who needed to go uh, and couldn't go to confession, I mean, couldn't go to communion until they got their confession, I can't change that. That's the law of the church, uh, and you know I understand it, it happens. So whether the priest was cognizant of people being there, uh, whether it was the time element, um, you know I want to give my uh, colleagues the benefit of the doubt. But uh, next time, you know maybe say, Father, excuse me, is there still time? Um, maybe he was unaware there were other people, and maybe he's not going to say mass in in a minute or two. Um, I, I don't know what the other aspects of that were, but yes, the church law and, and discipline and theology is that 
anyone with mortal sin needs to go uh, to confession. That's why even with general absolution, the condition is that the first chance you get, you still have to go to confession and re- and mention those sins. Uh, the general absolution is only in emergency situations, and uh, it's not absolute. Uh, next up is Jen in western Minnesota listening on Real Presence Radio. Jen, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Okay. Hello, Father John. I have a couple Hi. of questions. Um, one is a follow-up to one of the questions, I think it was last week, um, about when you die and can you give your body to research, and the answer was yes. And then there was no follow-up. I thought that you could do that, but then the body does have, does have to be returned to be buried. Is that correct, or am I wrong? No, if there's anything left over... Yes, you, they must. The, the leftover parts need to be shown respect, and if possible, uh, to be buried. But um, I have do- many doctor friends who tell me that when they do uh, medical research, uh, organ transplants, or whatever, um, there are many times where there are not parts available because they have to um, incinerate them for health reasons. Um, so a person may not get the rest of the parts that were not used. Um, uh, but it, but you want them treated with respect. So if they're able to, you're able to collect the the cremains, then they need to be buried uh, in the ground or at sea intact without being scattered. Um, many cases, you know, uh, when they're doing some research, they might use as many parts of the of the of the dead body as possible. So there might not be a lot even available. You just want to make it clear uh, as a stipulation. That you know, if you're going to donate your body to medical science, that the, the whatever is left over needs to be shown Christian respect, which means they need to be buried, or if they are incinerated for health reasons, the ashes need to be kept separate from all other types of of waste. And I know sometimes they may not like that, uh, whoever's accepting it, but that's the condition. Otherwise, I'm not going to donate my body uh, to science. So as long as the body's treated respectfully. And if there is a possibility of preserving whatever's left over, then yes. But uh, I just don't want people to indiscriminately, as you say, say, here's my body. And then, you know, once it's out of my hands, I have no control. Yes, you do. You have some legal, uh, you know, leverage there before you commit yourself to that. God bless you, Jen. We appreciate the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Bill is in the great state of Colorado. He's listening at EWTN.com. Bill, thanks for holding. You're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. God bless you this day on Columbus Day. My question is, what is your take on Columbus? On Columbus? Was he really a genocidal maniac? Or- <laughs> Uh, some people say, or was he actually kind of a savior of the world? Well, I, I'm glad you asked because uh, you know we get the, we've been getting this question a lot lately, and not only because I'm of Italian uh, heritage, but also you know for the sake of the truth. Um, Did you have you know, Bill the, call in with this question, John, <laughs> Father John? <laughs> no, I have. There's no collusion here whatsoever. <laughs> you know this 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 holiday was started in 1892 by President Harrison. Uh, in recompense for the 11 uh, Italian-Americans, most of whom were Sicilian, who were lynched in New Orleans uh, because uh, there was a, a little riot going on. There was, they were all innocent of any of the crimes that they were accused of. 
But this mob, because they were so anti-Italian, um, got the uh, nine that were arrested and they grabbed another two that were in the jail and hanged them. And this was the largest mass lynching that, that took place uh, at that time. So as an embarrassment, because the Italian government recalled their ambassador, uh, the president de declared this Columbus Day. And, you know, President Obama, President Bush, uh, everybody except for our current president have, you know, reiterated that, you know, Columbus Day is, is a day of Italian heritage. And the, the books that have been coming out recently on Christopher Columbus uh, go online. You can read from the uh, a, a number of Italian-American heritage um, groups and foundations. Columbus River Columbus came in 1492. It's still the Middle Ages. And yet when you read what he actually wrote and what he actually did, there was no uh, you know, uh, intent of genocide. Um, there were certainly bad things that happened, but it wasn't at his order. Um, you know, in fact, he brought priests on the board on the Santa Maria. They had mass on the ship, um, you know, uh, very frequently. In fact, Father Briganti and I, in 1992, for the quincentenary, we said mass on the altar that was on the Santa Maria. It was, it was at the Christopher Columbus Museum in Bullsburg, Pennsylvania, of all places. So I, you know, it's almost like what they've been saying about Pius XII. One book that uh, dissed him and accused him of being anti-Semitic then changed the course of history. But if you do the research, you find out that was not the case with Pius XII. And the case with Columbus is that, you know, th the things he's accused of are very, um, mostly conjecture. There's no actual evidence, but yes, some bad things happen, but not from him. In fact, he ordered his men, I saw the documentation, he orders men to not treat, mistreat the natives that were there because they were uh, children of God. That's why he brought the priest to help bring them into the faith. Thanks, Bill. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We head next to Rochester, Minnesota. Tish is another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tish, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Thank you. Father John, my question is actually a piggyback question based on an answer you gave just moments ago about the cremains of bodies when they go in for um, donation and what have you. Your, your comment, I believe, was, if possible, to take the cremains and bury them either in the ground or at sea, but I believe you used the, the term, they need to be done whole, not scattered. And I'm just wondering if that there is a religious reasoning for the not scattering of ashes. I'm very glad you asked that question because uh, the, the act of scattering is, is, is forbidden in the Catholic Church. I know people do it, they don't realize when um, John F. Kennedy's son, John John, died, uh, unfortunately, they scattered his ashes over uh, water, um, but the Cardinal uh, O'Malley made it clear that that was not uh, church practice, and it's because, you know, in the old days, cremation was, was frowned upon. They were worried about people denying the, the resurrection of the body, and then uh, cremation was allowed because for health reasons and also for economic reasons, but there's always the provision that 
the the priest who's going to you know participate in the funeral rites has to be convinced that you know there's no denial of the resurrection and the the remains need to be treated with respect. So as long as they're in a container, they can be buried in, in the ground or buried at sea. But having the ashes scattered uh, is, is considered a pagan custom. Uh, Christians always buried intact either the body or if, if they had to, the cremains, because even in ancient times, you know, there were such, you know, they recognized the fact that some diseases you, you had to, um, you know, uh, incinerate because of, of the danger of, of, of spreading the disease. So that's always been the church policy. Unfortunately, I've seen it done. Or people, worse yet, people will take a teaspoon or more of the cremains of their loved ones and keep them on home, wear them around their neck, and then bury the rest. No, you have to take the whole amount you're given from the undertaker or from the morgue and bury them intact, either uh, hopefully in sacred ground at a cemetery or at sea, but in a container. So the scattering is what we are very much against. And anytime you see that, you know, uh, the person there either was told the wrong information or they're doing something that's not right. Thanks, Tish. We appreciate the question. We have hit a nerve with our listeners, Father John, here on Mortuary Monday with Father <laughs> John Tregilio. Next up is Gary in Jackson, Michigan, listening on Good Shepherd Radio. Gary, you're on with Father John. Oh, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I had another follow-up on some of this discussion. Um, we can't, we're supposed to leave all the cremains intact and everything. And uh, in the old days in Europe, you know, when a body, when the person died, you know, the whole body was buried. But in this country, somebody dies and they're going to be embalmed. You know, they take all the blood out, and the blood goes down the drain. You know, they do that to the bishops, they do that to the priests, they do that to the nuns. Um, so the body is not really kept intact. I just wanted your comment on that. Okay, well, you're absolutely true. They take the blood out. Um, I don't believe they're allowed to pour the blood down the, the regular drain, though, because of the fact that, you know, there's dangerous things in blood. So uh, without it being necessarily the same as what we do in, in the sacristy, which has a special sacrarium that goes right into the ground, uh, I have some friends who are undertakers, and they tell me that whatever fluids they remove from the body have to be treated in the same way that a hospital has to do that. They have to be treated with um, respect, but also with caution. So it's not this, the blood isn't treated in a disrespectful way um, because of that fact. Yet they need to do that in order to um, infuse the, the embalming fluid. So uh, when I met intact by whatever is possibly intact. Now, uh, my brother, who was killed by a drunk driver, um, we donated, uh, and he was an organ donor, um, his eyes and also uh, some bones because they have what they call a bone bank. When a lot of people get surgery and they need um, have their uh, they need a piece of bone inserted that they, they themselves don't have, they get them from a bone bank, which is basically uh, these are things that people have been have donated after their death. Um, so he wasn't completely intact either when we buried him, but it was for a worthy cause, and they're treated with utmost respect. So I don't think there's a violation of the principle of being buried intact as long as it's you know within reason. 
God bless you, Gary. Thanks so much for the phone call today. We've still got time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. John would like to know how a saint becomes a doctor of the church. That's the decision of the Pope. Um, the Pope decides to declare someone like uh, St. Teresa of the Jew. Uh, any of the saints, I mean, uh, a father of the church is much more restricted, had to be a certain time in church history. Whereas a doctor of the church, it's ultimately the call of the Pope in the same way the Pope decides who's who's beatified, who's blessed, and who's canonized, who's a saint. Um, I'm very convinced that uh, Pope John Paul the Great will probably be called a doctor of the church and probably something similar to like the luminous doctor, the doctor of light, just as St. Thomas Aquinas is considered the angelic doctor. Uh, St. Bonaventure is considered the seraphic doctor. But it's a call made by the by the Pope uh, based on uh, the teachings of that particular saint. And uh, they don't hand him out that, that frequently. Uh, they want to do some study in the same way, but um, they go over the whole body of writings that this person has written, not just one or two of their best. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Uh, be sure to check out Fire on Earth, a great way to start your day. Peter Herbeck, one of the uh, most compelling evangelists really in America today, as far as I'm concerned, provides a compelling look at the new evangelization through inspiring teachings, interviews, and testimonies. Peter's insights will help Catholics acquire the tools they need to do their part in the new evangelization, that's Fire on Earth, Monday through Friday, 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Um, Paula would like to know, how can we combat human-constructed truths and relativism? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't Solve know exactly. the problems of the world in 14 yes. minutes and 3 seconds, Father. I don't know what necessarily she means by human constructed truths. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas makes it very clear in his Summa Theologica that there are three basic truths. You have empirical truths that are known through observation experimentation. So basically uh, scientific truths, you know, like water is H2O. That's a truth. Um, we also have philosophical truth that's based on pure reason. For instance, something cannot be and not be at the same time. Something either hot or cold. You're either dead or alive, you know, the principle of non-contradiction. Or 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's an intellectual concept. So you have philosophical truth. You have empirical truth. And then finally, the third one is theological revealed truth, that uh, in God there are three persons but one God. In Jesus Christ, uh, since the incarnation, you've got um, divine nature, human nature, hypostatically united to the one divine person. That's something that neither uh, science nor reason could get to on its own. But those are the three basic truths, and all of them, all three are true. Uh, it's just that the third one, revealed ones, comes to us directly from God, whereas the other two are ascertained either by our observation, like I said, or through the use of reason. Uh, relativism is that, not that it takes a, a, a dim view on, on those three, it ignores that there's such a thing as theological revealed truths, and also that all truths are sort of uh, up for grabs. Well, no, either 2 plus 2 equals 4 or it doesn't. 2 plus 2 can never equal 5.
But a relativist could say, well, you know, uh, that's your truth. No, it's not my truth. It's true. When your mind conforms to reality, that's truth. When you have a neurosis where you don't like it, that still not doesn't make it untrue. And when you have a psychosis where you deny what's true, you're in a very bad predicament. Uh, next up on this uh, Mortality Monday that we've uh, we've gotten into here is Barb, another first-time caller, calling from Merritt Island, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Barb, you are on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Thank you so thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, my question is: My husband spent twenty six years in the Navy, and uh, he wants to be buried at sea, whole body. And yes. I told him I didn't think that was allowed unless he got a special dispensation from the Pope. And I was just wondering, is burial at sea, whole body, uh, allowed in the Catholic Church? Yes, it is. It has always been since the time of antiquity because we've always had sailors, all right? My dad was in the Navy for World War II and Korea, but he decided he wanted to get buried uh, at the cemetery. But the Church has always allowed burial at sea, one, because— and many times you're out at sea, especially during wartime, you don't have the luxury of keeping a dead body on the ship. You have to bury them immediately before, you know, contagion starts. So there was a very practical reason for that. But also the fact that if, if you know, someone was a sailor in the Navy, a merchant marine or whatever, um, you know, they have an attachment to the sea. So as long as the body's intact, and you've seen this done in the movies where they wrap them up uh, very respectfully and then... Uh, lower the body into the water. It's just that we don't want the body cremated and then the ashes scattered, but you can be buried intact without any need for uh, a papal or Episcopal um, dispensation or permission. Thanks, Barb. We appreciate it. Patricia is also on the east coast of Florida listening on Divine Mercy Radio with a very important question. Patricia, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Um, my family and I scattered my brother's ashes at sea, and until I heard your station today, I never knew that was not an acceptable thing to do. So will my brother be punished because of that? No, no, absolutely not, no. Because nobody did this intentionally. Um, you know, you, you were you, you were un. You did not realize that was church policy and teaching and discipline. So you don't have to worry. He does, you, don't, you certainly don't have to go to confession. He has nothing to worry about. He's not going to be denied the resurrection. But in the future, uh, hopefully our listeners and people watching this will know that church does not permit or allow or condone uh, the scattering of ashes. It will be done. Some people will do it in defiance of the church. Most of them will do it not knowing. That's where my colleagues and I need to tell people, uh, not at the funeral parlor, but on a regular Sunday basis in the bulletin from the pulpit, uh, to remind people that this is not our practice and this is church law, and that uh, if somebody hears about it, they should try to dissuade someone uh, from doing that without it becoming something that's going to be nasty or or mean-spirited. There you go, Patricia. Be at rest. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Mark is right with uh, right with you there in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Father. Ooh. Another first-time caller listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Mark, you're on with Father Tregilio. 
hi there. Is it ever morally acceptable in an extreme circumstance to eat the flesh of, let's say, a passed away human being, maybe like a survival circumstance? Well, I've heard that. That's, I mean, I've heard it, it was on very rare occasions. As long as the person's dead and you didn't cause their death, I mean, it's it sounds gross. And But if it's going to keep you alive, um, there's no... Um, prohibition on eating human flesh as long as you did not hurry their death to, in order to get the food. Um, if they died in natural causes, uh, then, yeah, out of necessity, you could. But, um, you know, I, I've also spoken to a number of doctors and scientists who say it's so rare an occasion where you would need to do that, that it's almost uh, more of a theoretical question. But if you, God forbid, ever were in that situation, as long as you don't kill the person, all right, or say to them, well, you're not getting any food, so you can die quicker than the rest of us, and then we can cook you. Um, yeah, but the, intri intrinsically, the eating of human flesh, um, you know, it, again, it sounds very nasty, and it should be something to be avoided at all costs. But, you know, if you're in a plane that landed in the Andes, like the one I, I remember reading about when I was a kid, uh, you know, self-survival is, is an instinct that God put in us. We just have to do it with prudence. And really quickly, Father, just in the 90 seconds or so we have left, uh, Seth in Champaign, Illinois, wanted to know why are some Old Testament rules still in play and others aren't? Uh, well, the New Testament rules that are based on the natural moral law, like no adultery, no stealing, no murder, uh, those are still intact. It's the mosaic laws that are dietary, like not eating of pork, uh, of uh, shellfish, those are things which were absolved uh, in, the, in the New Testament. So uh, it's the ones that come directly from God, divine positive law, or the natural moral law. The human laws that were, because remember, there was like over 600 some mosaic rules. Um, St. Paul and, and St. Peter, you know, make it clear in the, in the New Testament that we're not bound by those anymore. During the show, we got a call from Mount St. Mary's. They want to know where you're at. I met the Josephina. <laughs> <laughs> Would you leave There's us nobody with... there, so I don't know who called in. <laughs> <laughs> Would you leave us with a blessing? Yes. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great start to a week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes, talking faith, family, and fellowship on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Until we get together then, God bless.